0: If you have your Bible with you, please open up to John chapter 14, Uh, we're going to be in verses 15 to 24 today, John 14 in the New Testament, and uh, Jesus at this point was gathering his disciples, if you remember, uh, to celebrate the Passover meal, it would be his last supper, and he told them that a new chapter was about to begin in the plan of God's redemption, and Jesus was preparing to die. And at the same time that that was happening, he was preparing his disciples to take the message of God's salvation to the ends of the earth because it wasn't ever God's plan to save just one race or one people group or one social class from sin. God planned to redeem the eternities of people from all people groups on earth from Stanwood to Swaziland to Norway. And every place in between. And in last week's passage, Jesus told the disciples that uh, they should pray to him and ask him to do great things as they took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus wants to do this. He wants to do great acts of redemption in people's lives. It was Jesus' plan to do this. It was his plan to use gospel ministry to push back the darkness in this world. And so when you and I ask Jesus to work in specific ways, when we pray to him and say, will you work in this specific way to advance your kingdom here on earth, we are not twisting God's arm when we do that. That's good news. We're simply asking God to do those things that he's already said he loves to do. We're asking him to redeem human lives in their entirety for the glory of God's name. And as Jesus does that, as he redeems our broken lives, he tells us that the central thread running through this plan of redemption is the love of God. The love of God. Just think about how much time Jesus has spent describing here God the Father's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for God the Father... And God the Father's love for humanity and Jesus' love for humanity and how we Christians ought to love one another and how we Christians ought to love our neighbors regardless of their spiritual beliefs. See, Jesus wants us to understand that God's plan to redeem our lives from brokenness derives from and happens through the mind-boggling love of God. That's how it happens, As God in human flesh, Jesus wants us to know that he loves us immensely, that God loves us. And now Jesus is gonna tell us how we can love him. Because it matters to God that we love him. Jesus says that the Lord's greatest commandment for you and for me is to love the Lord to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And the more that we get to know this incredible God revealed in the Bible, the more that we see that he wants us to love him not only because he deserves it, but also because it's only through loving him that we will experience the true eternal joy that God created us to experience with him. It's only through loving him and being loved by him. So, If God wants us to love him, what exactly does that mean? Uh, What does that look like to love God? What evidence does God look for in our lives to tell whether or not we love him? That's what Jesus is going to talk about in this passage. John 14, 15 to 24. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, open your word now and we just ask Holy Spirit for your help. Um, We know that we can come to this passage today and read its words, skim it, and have it go in one ear and out the other, but we pray that that wouldn't happen now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach our hearts, our souls, that you would teach our minds, teach our bodies to obey you and love you and see you as glorious, God. We can't pay you back for your love, we can't pay you back for the salvation that you give us, but we do offer you ourselves now. And we ask for more of your grace and help as we read this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in John 14, 15 to 24, Jesus tells his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So in this passage, Jesus says the same thing four different ways. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. In verse 24, whoever does not love me, Does not keep my words. So the message is clear. If you love Jesus, you'll keep his commandments. If you love Jesus, you will do what he's told you to do. Put it another way the evidence that a person loves Jesus, or a evidence, is that he or she obeys Jesus. Evidence that a person does not love Jesus is that he or she does not obey Jesus. Jesus says then that loving uh, God and obeying God, they go hand in hand. So let's begin by asking three questions about this relationship between loving God and obeying God. First question is this Do I have to love God? Do I have to love God? In these verses, Jesus kind of implies that I'll want to love God. But what if that's not how I feel? What if I don't want to love God? What if I believe in God? and I believe in heaven and hell, and I believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, but truth be told, I'm just not really interested in loving God, or obeying God for that matter. I'm, I'm thankful that he died for me, and I definitely want to go to heaven when I did die, and if I'm honest, though, I'm not really interested in pursuing God during my earthly life. I kind of just want to soak up as much happiness as I can while I'm here and do my best to be a good person. And And then hopefully I'll go be with God and my relatives when I die. Isn't that that good enough? Do I have to love God? Well, the short answer is no, you don't, of course, have to love God. But God warns you that that's the worst thing you can do for yourself and for the people that you love. Now, if you don't love God, if you don't want to pursue God, then you're certainly not alone. In fact, your feelings reflect the feelings of most people, I would guess, in our town, and most people in our community and in this world, because it's not unusual for a person to not love God or want God. Jesus has told us that. Here's the rub, though. If what you really want is heaven, but it doesn't honestly matter to you whether or not you have God, then what you'll get in the end is neither heaven nor god. The reason Jesus left earth or left heaven and came to earth and lived a sinless life in your place, the reason he died for your sins in your place, the reason he rose again from the dead was not just to give you heaven, it was to give you himself. Okay? It was to give you himself forever. He died on the cross actually to kill your old spiritual self that didn't love him and he rose from the grave to create in you a new spiritual self that does love him okay so if you're here today and you're thinking to yourself I just if I'm honest I don't love God I don't really feel like I want to follow God then I'd just say this thank you for being honest <laughs> and you're not alone but I would challenge you this way talk to God even if you have a tough time believing that he's there, start with that. Talk to God. And humbly ask him to show you how much he loves you. Start there. And then also realize that, that God has also revealed himself already. And so if you're just expecting to like hear a tree start talking to you or something, that's, that's probably not going to happen. It could, but it's probably not. What well, God says over and over is this. Read my word. And look at what I did for you on the cross. So I would read this book of John and I would ask God to say, God, would you show me your truth and your love here? Because I want to know the truth and God wants you to know the truth. Ask God to reveal himself to you. I'm convinced from the Bible and from experience that You can't want God or love God or believe in God by relying on your own intellect and will alone. I think God needs to help you to do that. So ask God to help you. Now remember in this context though, Jesus is talking to the 11 disciples who did love him and who did want to follow him. And so if that describes you today, then then I'll throw out a second question for you. What is loving God like? according to this passage. According to Jesus, an important part of loving God is obeying God. If we love God, then we will seek to obey him with our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. And so, in other words, we will want to love God with all parts of our life, with all parts that make us up, not with just part of who we are. And Scripture gives us plenty of examples of people who thought they were loving God, but they really weren't because they were only offering God part of their lives, part of themselves. For instance, the Pharisees were the religious leaders we read about in the New Testament who who thought that they loved God because they were better than most people at obeying God's commands with their actions. Okay? And they followed all of God's laws very strictly according to their, old in, their own interpretation of those laws. However, we get the impression from Scripture that most of the Pharisees didn't truly love God because their love for him was limited to their actions. Okay? They didn't also love him with their hearts. They wanted to, they wanted to do their way into heaven. They wanted to earn their way into heaven. They thought that they were also better and holier than other people because of these religious works that we do. We know the law. We interpret the, ra- the law right. And if you don't follow the law the way we say, you're all wrong. Okay? The Pharisees looked clean on the outside, but not on the inside. Their hearts were dirty. So loving God only with our actions is an incomplete love. Now on the other end of the spectrum... I'm not pointing to this group of people over here. I'm just (laughs) doing a spectrum here in my mind. On the other end of, and I'm not calling you Pharisees. um, On the other end of the spectrum, we can't love God only with our hearts. If we think that loving God only means having Jesus as your best buddy and only having nonstop, highly intense emotional encounters with God, then we're going to be in trouble. Because God also requires that we worship him with our minds. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And if our love for God is primarily centered around feelings and heart experiences, without obeying God with our minds and our actions, then our love is actually very hazardous to ourselves and to others. Loving God means that we grow in treasuring God and trusting God as our only God, who is our only hope and who is our only strength. And because we treasure him, because we trust him, then we want to love him by obeying him. And this is what loving God is, is like. Now the third question about loving and obeying God is this. What are God's commandments like then? if we're supposed to love God by obeying his commandments, then what are those commandments like? Well, Jesus gives us lots of commandments about how we should honor God and relate to God. These, you might consider, uh, I think, an arrow pointing to heaven. Like, uh, these are vertical commandments, okay? For instance, in the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' most repeated commandments to us is to believe him. To believe that he is God's son from heaven. To believe that... He lived and died and rose again. Jesus' command to believe is a vertical command. And at the same time, Jesus also gives us lots of horizontal commands, which go this way. And I always think of it as a cross tied together. Okay? Jesus gives us these horizontal commands about how we should treat one another. At his last supper, in this context, Jesus has told the disciples uh, to serve one another with humility like he has served them, and he's told them to love one another like he has loved them. And so those are examples of horizontal commands. So God gives us these vertical commands and these horizontal commands, and they are bound to each other. Okay. They affect each other. They come together to form this cross. And when we are not obeying God in his vertical commands... It not only hurts our vertical relationship with god but also it hurts our horizontal relationship with other people and when we're not obeying god in his horizontal commands about how we should treat other people it not only hurts our relationship with other people but it also hurts our vertical relationship with god all these commands that jesus gives us god gives us in his word are to help us god's commands show us how holy he is, how completely different he is, really, from the values of this world. Um, God's commands show us the way to true life and joy. And since God is the one who created us, then we will do well to heed his advice, to heed his commands, to ask him to give us hearts that love him and that will seek to do what he's told us to do. And like I said before, I think we need his help to do that. Working to love the Lord by keeping his commandments is an evidence of a true Christian. Now, hear that correctly. I didn't say working to be saved by the Lord by keeping his commandments is evidence of a true Christian. And I didn't say working to stay saved and to stay loved by God by keeping his commandments is evidence of a true Christian. We're not saved by our works. Eternal salvation is a gift from God. It's his grace that we receive through faith. We re- receive through trusting him alone. Working to love the Lord by joyfully obeying his commands is an evidence of a true Christian. So now, okay, so we're, we're feeling this, right? We're feeling this. The weightiness of this mission is really starting to set in, especially if you've been here in past weeks. Because the disciples, or if you've read John before this, the disciples might have been thinking themselves at this dinner, okay, Jesus, we've got to take the gospel to the world. We've got to give up our lives for each other. We've got to become each other's servants. We've got to love each other and outsiders. We've got to obey God's commands. How in the world are we going to do this? How? We are just men, Jesus, and you're leaving us. <laughs> so how do you expect us to do all of this? Well, Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows they're afraid. And so he tells them in verses 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So remember that in verses 12 to 14, which we talked about last week, Jesus told the disciples that the works that they will do for the kingdom of God will often happen because they asked God for those specific works. And here Jesus models for them the relationship between prayer and our kingdom advancing works. Jesus models for them how this works. Jesus says that he will ask God the Father to help them on their mission, and the Father will respond to Jesus' Jesus's request by giving them another helper. And so when we pray that God will do great kingdom-advancing works in our lives according to his will, he will do it. And Jesus models it here. Get in the disciples' mind for a minute here, if you can. Ever since, the, ever since Jesus began his public ministry, ever since he was walking along the... Coastline and called those disciples to leave everything they had and to follow him. He had been their helper. He led them. He taught them. He encouraged them. He provided for them. He made sure they had food when there was no food around. And now he was leaving them. But since Jesus loved his disciples and since he loves us, he also promised to give us another helper. A helper who will be with us, he says, forever. So this helper will not come into our lives and then leave. This helper will be with us forever. And Jesus tells us who the helper is in verse 17. The spirit of truth. So there's one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the spirit of the truth is who... uh, who Jesus is talking about here is the third person in the Trinity also known as the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost and and just as Jesus remember in verse 6 Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life and so also his Holy Spirit is the spirit of all truth the Holy Spirit carries the truth of God he convicts people Their hearts, he convicts their hearts about their true need for God. He ministers to us in accordance with the truth of God's promises. The Holy Spirit empowers us as we hold on to and proclaim God's truth to the world. And here Jesus says that the world, though in its sinful rebellion against God, cannot receive this Spirit. Cannot receive the Holy Spirit on its own. It cannot accept the truth of God and it does not want to know the truth of God. The world and everyone who belongs to the world wants to remain in the darkness and does not want to come to the light lest their works be exposed. The world does not see the Holy Spirit as true. And it does not know the Holy Spirit as the God it was created to glorify. And many of our family members and many of our friends and neighbors are One with this dark world, just like all of us were at one point. So, again, may we do what Jesus says here. May we continue to plead to God on behalf of other people that they would see Him and know Him and know His love for them. Because the reality is, nobody in the darkness is going to pray for themselves. They don't even know they're in the darkness. They can't see. They're lost. They can't see at all. They're in spiritual darkness, they're blind. So we'll do what Jesus commanded us to do. We'll ask God to do great things, to do great kingdom advancing things in our lives and through our church, according to his timing and wisdom, according to his will, so that many more people will be rescued. So that many more people will be rescued from darkness and brought to the light. And so that ultimately God's glory would be multiplied in people's lives and through their lives as they shine the light to other people. In verse 17, Jesus tells the disciples and subsequently all who believe in him that they know the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit testifies, says that they know him because the Holy Spirit dwells with them. So the Holy Spirit lives with them and he says he even lives in them and will be in them forever. So there's a variety of different evidences that a person has been recreated spiritually by God. And some of those evidences we see in our lives and some we can't see, they happen kind of in the spiritual realm. But they're still true. And here Jesus says that as the Holy Spirit brings about spiritual fruit in our lives that people can see, it happens because the Holy Spirit invisibly lives with us and in us. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus then is the Holy Spirit's presence with you and in you something that you think about very often it's an amazing reality and I think it would do all of us well to meditate more often on that because the Holy Spirit of Jesus is working around us Jesus says he is ministering to us He's at work in us, and he will not leave us, Jesus says, because we have been sealed by this same Holy Spirit as God's sons and daughters who have been redeemed by Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection. It begins to get very Trinitarian in John 13 to 17, meaning Jesus doesn't just talk about the Father and the Son. He talks about the Spirit, and they all play a different role. They're all... Interwoven, They're all playing a different role in the redemption of humanity. But Jesus says this, and you need to hear this today, and I need to hear this. Even when you are alone, when you are lonely, the Holy Spirit is with you and will never leave you if you are in Christ. Even when you are betrayed by this world, the Holy Spirit is with you and will never betray you. Even when you are suffering, like many of you are today and your loved ones are, the Holy Spirit knows your suffering, and he will minister to you in your suffering. This is why, again, this goes back a little bit why we have to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm in hard circumstances, I don't feel like God is in me. I don't feel like God is with me doing something miraculous. But Jesus says he is. So this isn't just a heart emotional thing. This is like, I'm gonna love the Lord with my mind right now and say, this is truth. And I'm gonna believe this with my soul because this is truth regardless of how my circumstances feel right now. Even when we have great obstacles that we must face, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the power to will and to work his good pleasure, to overcome those obstacles in our lives. Wow, thank you, Holy Spirit. Up to this point in John's gospel, like we said, he's he's mainly talked about the relationship between the Father and the Son, and now we're gonna hear a lot about the Spirit. So uh, Jesus in verse 14, uh, in verse 18, sorry, hops back to talking about his role as God the Son in the mission of God, though. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus says he will not abandon the disciples as orphans. Instead, he will come to them again. He will return to them. Now, there are a lot of different uh, interpretations of what uh, Jesus means when he says this here, that he'll come back to them. Is he talking about the resurrection when he's going to show up after that? Is he talking about when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost? Is he talking about the second coming on the last day when he comes back? Or... Since biblical prophecy is often, uh, it often has multiple fulfillments. Is Jesus talking about all three of these events? Well, I think it's possible that Jesus is talking about all three of these events. But when you look at what's happening in the immediate context, I think Jesus is looking to the cross and he's looking to his resurrection. Jesus would soon be horribly abused and crucified and killed His body would be wrapped in burial garments. He'd be buried in a tomb. But he would not leave the disciples as orphans. He would come to them again. He would rise from the dead in awesome power and he would come to them again and find them where they were hiding. He would appear to them and he would talk to them and eat with them and they would touch his body and they would hear his voice and see and feel and hear that he really was back from the dead. And even though his uh, reunion with them in his physical body would be brief, Jesus promised to them that the Holy Spirit was coming soon. And this is what Jesus describes in verses 19 to 20. He tells the disciples, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you and me, And I in you. So Jesus says that on the day when he would come to them in his resurrection body, they would be so profoundly affected by that encounter. Can you imagine that encounter? Seeing the resurrected Jesus come to you physically after you just saw him slaughtered. When he shows up to you in power and glory, he says that's going to so profoundly affect you that you will know that I am God. And that everything I say and do is true. So Jesus says here that the reason we can be sure that he will advance his kingdom through our prayers and through our works in great ways. The reason we can trust his promises and be sure that they are true. The reason we know that the Holy Spirit will empower us to do his works. The reason we know that the Holy Spirit will encourage us. As we do his works, the reason we know that we will live with Jesus after death is because Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. See that? That's where the resurrection is central here. None of our kingdom advancing works, none of our hope in the Holy Spirit's power in our lives, this is good news, rests on our power or our perfection. These things only rest completely on the truth and power of Jesus' resurrection. A space time event in history that he rose from the dead. Knowing and trusting the power of Jesus' resurrection is, is crucial, cr- crucial for us as we study this passage specifically, because this passage can be weighty when we start hearing about God's commandments, and we have to obey his commandments. We've gotta obey his commandments, all of his commandments to demonstrate that we love God, but guess what? You and I have failed. We have failed, and every other person on planet Earth and who's ever lived has failed at following God's commands. We failed at loving God by obeying his commandments. But by his grace, the Holy Spirit is working in his children now to will and to work God's works in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is transforming us into the image of God as we work with him to love the Lord with all that we are by seeking to obey him for his glory and for our joy. It doesn't change the reality that all of us have fallen short of obeying God. But that is exactly why the life and death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf is everything. Everything. It's not an abstract reality. It's a concrete event, a concrete truth. That's where our hope rests on the merits of this resurrected Jesus. Because even though we haven't obeyed God's commandments perfectly, Jesus did. He lived the spotless life on earth that we should have lived. He obeyed all of God's commandments perfectly on our behalf. And through faith in Jesus... His perfect life that he lived is now given to us. It is now our perfect life in God's sight. Even though we have not suffered the eternal wrath of God as punishment for our rebellion against him, Jesus did. He didn't suffer for his rebellion against God. He suffered for the rebellion of his church against God. Jesus became our sin on the cross. He became our sins against him. He became those old dead spiritual selves that didn't want anything to do with them and he put those things to death when he died. He took our sin away from us and he gave us the perfection that he has in the Father's eyes. And all of this is ours if we trust in him. If we believe that he is God, we are not. And there is no other God. It's Jesus. And even though we have not conquered Satan and death, Jesus has. He has risen from the dead to seal this reality forever and to give us overwhelming evidence and everlasting hope in him. And the reason we believe that he's gonna continue to work his works in our lives, he's gonna continue to sustain us in our faith by the power of this Holy Spirit is because we believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's central to the gospel. Through faith, we believe that we are united to Jesus right now. And he has made us new. He has forgiven us. He has made us pure in God's sight. He has declared us not guilty in God's sight because of his work for us. That's gold. (laughs) Now let me point out a few other nuggets in this passage, which go along with this which we can celebrate because Jesus has risen from the dead. At the end of verse 19, Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. So if you've trusted in Jesus to save you, then he has united you to himself by the power of the Spirit. And because you're united to Jesus, then Jesus shares with you what belongs to him. And eternal life belongs to Jesus. An eternal flourishing after this life on earth belongs to Jesus. And so that means that eternal life and flourishing after death belongs to you if you trust him. Because Jesus lives, you also will live. At the end of verse 20, Jesus says that because of his resurrection, the disciples will know that they are in him. And they will know that he is in them. So when Jesus unites us to himself... When we trust in him, this is what he says in Col- uh, Colossians, I think, he hides us in himself. And at the same time, he hides himself in us. The Holy Spirit hides us in the person of Jesus and the Holy Spirit puts Jesus in us. These are incredible truths. It's like the best steak you can get, okay? So you need to savor this. This isn't something we just chomp through. This is something I want to come back to this week. Man, just sit on some of these realities this week and be encouraged. And how can't we love God? How can't we want to love God if we believe this is true? And then in the second half of verse 21, Jesus says, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So we're not saved and loved only by Jesus. We're saved and loved by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and they love us forever. And God will not hide this love from us. He says that he will manifest himself to us. Okay, now, let's move forward. In verse 22 to 24, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will... Love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So Jesus says that the person who loves God will be loved in a special way by God, and he will come to us. He will make his home with us. Remember that Jesus said in verse 17 that, The Spirit will dwell with us and be in us. And here Jesus says the same thing in a different way. He says, when the Spirit dwells in us, the three-in-one God makes his home in us. And God doesn't just rent out space in your heart and your life and your mind. God has bought your heart. He's bought your life. He's bought your mind as his home. And he enters us with the intent to live in us forever. It is his dwelling place. And it's kind of a funny idea because earlier Jesus said that he was going to heaven to prepare a place for us to live with him there. But this is the encouraging point that whether we are at home with God in heaven or whether we're sojourners here on earth, God has made his home in us. God doesn't make his home in animals or in trees. He doesn't make his home in these awesome mountains that we get to look at all the time. He doesn't make his home um, in the brightest stars or the most frightening angels that he's also created. God does not make his home in this world or inside anyone who is part of this world. God makes his home inside everyone who believes in him. What Jesus says, So, Christian, listen, this means that although you are not God and I am not God, you have in you God's spirit who is working in your life to heal you and redeem you and to do powerful kingdom advancing works through your life. So what that means is do not believe anything contrary to that reality. Don't believe Satan's lies that would belittle that reality of what God is and is doing in and through you. Don't believe that you are worthless because that contradicts what Jesus says. Don't believe that you are powerless because we've not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. Don't believe that you are purposeless. Christian, you are a saint of God in Jesus Christ. The time that you have on earth is precious and purposeful, even if you don't know what's happening right now exactly, and it is not the end Of your story. May that change the way that we see our lives. (laughs) May this reality change the way that we value our time. May it change the way we relate to God, relate to our families, relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to our neighbors. In 1 Corinthians 6 19 to 20, Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? you are not your own, so you don't own yourself. (laughs) For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And Jesus says in today's passage, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Now what an honor it is to obey the one who obeyed God perfectly on our behalf. Because that's what we're talking about. When we fall short of obedience, and we will, we confess our sins to God because he opens that door to us, we take our eyes off of our sin and off of this world and we look to Jesus in faith and he tells us to trust in him for his forgiveness and grace and he will purify us from all unrighteousness so let's ask the Holy Spirit who is in us to keep doing this because God's an infinite God we're finite but God's grace is not finite God has more grace, more strength for us, let's ask him to give us zeal to love him, zeal to obey him. And may we rest in this message that Jesus has already done the work of salvation for us. Our job is to trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that you have given us. Um, these realities are just incredible that because of what you've done on the cross, Jesus, and because of what the Holy Spirit has done to remake us and because God the Father has sent the Spirit and the Son to oversee all of this because of his great love for us, that we who believe in Christ are new creations, that we are declared not guilty in God's sight, that our sins and brokenness is taken away. We recognize, God, that we live in a broken, suffering world and our lives are not perfect Some of that's our fault, God, as far as us individually, God. Some of it is just part of being part of a broken humanity. But what we do is come to you, God, and just ask for your grace and help. We thank you for redeeming us. We pray that you would do great works in our lives beyond our wildest expectations of what you could do in and through our prayers. And some of that, you know what, we probably won't even see it until heaven. But please help us to stay motivated to trust you, to chase after you, to follow you because we believe that you want what's best for us. And may we rest in your grace, God, and just celebrate that our salvation is in and through you alone and not through ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.